Hey, well, thank you, Kevin, and everyone else who participated, the DR team and everybody. Amazing morning. Thank you, Greg, and the worship team for leading us, and sound people for getting us through the little um, blow-up we had. That was awesome. Well, I have a confession to make to you. If, if you know me at all personally, you actually already know this is true about me, that I um, struggle with patience, and I like control. And those things, by the way, are not good for someone who's going to be teaching a series called Trust Me. Because those two character problems um, don't go well with a life of faith and trust. By default, those go exactly against what trust is all about. Because I don't want to wait, <laughs> number one, for someone else to come through. I want to just do it. Uh, you know, when we were um, painting our house, when we built it 10 years ago, I was fine to take the roller and do the big parts of the wall, but all that trim work, it just takes way too long, and I have no patience for that kind of thing. Uh, last week, maybe two weeks ago, I had to install an invisible dog fence on our property, which was a lot of fun. I hope you get to do that sometime. And I had to cut across our driveway, our asphalt driveway, to be able to lay that little line in there. Uh, and I'd never done that before, so I just got a masonry saw blade and put it on my circular saw. And it took, in my mind, right, forever to go like half inch by half inch by half inch across the driveway. And I'm like, this is taking, for, like, this is taking for forever, like 20 minutes, right? Like forever to get across there because I just don't have the, the default patience for things like that. And that's just kind of the way that I'm wired sometimes. I just want things to happen quicker than they do. And I also like control. I like to know when I'm in a restaurant where the exit is. I like to be able to sit so I can see who's coming in and who's going out. I don't like to have my back to the place, right? Some of you may be like that. And that's not always a great thing. In fact, many times it's not a great thing. But it doesn't go well for a life of trust. It doesn't go well for a life of faith because faith requires actually that you are patient and that you can give up a measure of control. And so I run into a problem. But I also think if we're honest, we can share some of these characteristics. I don't know if I'm totally alone in this world. In fact, this generation, I think, coined a phrase for us, and they, they will use the language FOMO. It's not used as much anymore. It's not actually a curse word. It just means fear of missing out, that if I have the option uh, this coming weekend to go with my friends to the beach or go with my friends to the cabin, now, you know, what do I, what do I choose? I mean, if I choose the, the beach, I might miss out on the people who go to the, the cabin and what they get to do. If I choose the cabin, then what about the beach people? And the problem is exacerbated because social media allows me to see the people who are at the cabin, and I'm not there, I'm at the, the beach, but look at all the fun they're having. Maybe I should be at the, the cabin, and the cabin people see the beach people, and both of us are like, maybe I've missed out. And underneath the missing out fear is, I want, like, I'm not patient enough to wait for all that life has to give me. I need to get it all now, and I need to get it all now. Underneath FOMO is actually both the things that I struggle with, impatience and control. I want it, and I want it now, and I need to control it all. FOMO is just a part of all of our lives to one degree or another. And it is a problem when we come to talking about this issue of trust. If we want to give it just a lip service, we can walk right by it. If we want to pause for a minute and dive in and ask real questions of your life and my life around trust, it does become something we need to talk about. And so here's a question for this morning, and the question is this, you know, what do you do when it seems like trusting just isn't working? What do you actually do for people like me? Maybe people like you, I don't know if you have the same issues I do, I'm sure you have different ones, but you know, what do you do when it feels like trusting, which seems incredibly passive? If you're someone who's not very patient and likes control, the idea of trust, of stopping control, of intentionally giving up control and letting someone else or something else lead can be incredibly both debilitating and make you feel incredibly passive. You mean I have to wait? 
I have to wait for God to come through? Like, I thought that I might have peace when I finally was in this dating relationship, and I don't have it. You mean I have to wait for this conflict to be resolved? You mean I need to wait for financial security? You mean I need to wait for God to do something with my kids, and I can't manipulate their future, and I need to trust God that he will see them through and not allow them to make the decisions that they seem to be making that are heading down a wrong way? Like, you mean I need to not try to control and be impatient with the outcomes of what's going on in my job and what's going on in my marriage and what's going on with my kids. I mean, I need to, to wait. Like, that really doesn't seem to be working right now. What do you do when just trusting doesn't seem to have enough teeth and doesn't seem to have enough traction, and you've tried it, but it doesn't seem to be working? And I'll tell you, in practicality, what I do to answer this question is this, that we come up, at least I come up, with a good idea. And you do, too. Well, I don't know if the trusting thing is working so much, but here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do in our marriage. Here's what we're going to do with my kids. Here's what I'm going to do in business. Here's what I'm going to do in my schooling. Here's what I'm going to do with my education. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Because you're smart enough to come up with a good idea. And often those good ideas are flat-out good ideas. But there's also a category that I want to talk about this morning, and I want to invite you to look with me in a minute into the Scriptures. But there's a category. There's a category we need to address, and that is this issue that, that not every good idea is God's idea. That not every good idea that you come up with and not every good idea that I come up with is actually God's idea. And not every good idea is God's ideal either. And thus the rub of trust actually engaging real life where you and I meet. For people who are impatient and like control, when it doesn't seem to be working, it seems too passive to just wait on God to bring justice and peace and meaning, I come up with a good plan, but I have to acknowledge that there are times when not every good idea that I come up with and maybe not every good idea that you come up with actually is God's idea. It's just my idea. And this is the problem that our friends Sarah and Abraham enter into years, thousands of years ago that is recorded for us in the book of Genesis in the Bible. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the very first book in the Bible called Genesis. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you. Be glad to have you take that home with you if you don't own one. You can look it up on your tablet or your phone. But we're in Genesis uh, chapter 16 is where we're going to start and, and stay this morning. We're going to be right in and throughout that entire chapter this morning. As we see Abraham and Sarah, this is before their names were changed. So we will see them as Abram and Sarai, but don't worry, they're the same people. As they engage an issue that was a real trust problem for them. Because to set up chapter 16 of Genesis, it comes, surprise, surprise, right after Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God has just promised to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that, he, that all people on earth will be blessed through him, that he will have an incredible lineage. He's going to have a ton of kids. He's going to have kids who have a ton of kids. And every person, including, by the way, including you, literally you and literally me, will be blessed because of God's covenant with Abraham. But the problem for Abraham is he sits childless. And he has been married to Sarai, his wife, for at least a decade as we enter into chapter 16. And for at least a decade, and I try to imagine this, for at least a decade, they have been married and they have not been able to have any children. And so for at least a decade, they have this history, and they don't have a fertility clinic to go to, and they don't have in vitro options. They don't have any of those options that we might have or consider today. They just are stuck. And then God comes along with this promise of you who are barren are going to be the parents of many. In fact, everyone will be blessed through you. It's crazy. And so enter chapter 16 in the rub of when trusting doesn't seem to be working. Like I could just sit there and trust God, but after 10 years 
of waiting, what do you do when trusting doesn't seem to be working anymore? And the answer is, you come up with a good idea. And so here we see the good idea right away in verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. All right, first two verses, we're going to pause it here because this introduces our problem and Sarah's solution right away. Now look at, the, look at how this sets up again. Look at verse, verse 2. Sarai says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. She identifies that God is the one who has kept her. That's her perspective of this. God is the one who's kept me. The ironic thing is, if this is God's fault, then she doesn't allow God to solve it. This is God's problem, therefore I'm going to solve it. And that doesn't seem to be the right way to approach it. If it's God's problem, maybe we need to approach it with God's solution, not mine. And so she goes in right away and says, here's what I want you to do. Go sleep with my slave and perhaps I can build a family through her. And I want you to know this uh, this offends our sensibilities today, right? I mean, this sounds terrible for us uh, if you're you know, living in the world in which we live in now. But, but I also want you to know that this was part of, um, you know, part of the way things were. There was at least four ancient codes that were uh, written and that existed in this time, ways of living, um, almost functioned as law because there was no social services, there was no um, children and youth, there was no um, government-run social service programs to provide for widows and to provide for orphans and things of that nature, that families often became that social service uh, you know, network that people you know, landed on. And so the codes allowed for, in the problem of infertility, the general social service, if you will, network or, or landing spot said, here's what you do, and one of the solutions is if you have a slave, then you can give your slave to your husband and allow your husband to uh, you know, impregnate, if you will, that slave, and then you can have a child that way because, again, no fertility clinics to go to. And so this is not without precedent. In fact, in, again, in four different cultures, in four different nations, in four different even time frames, this was just what was done. It, it's simply, it's a biology problem. That's all it is. Forget the ethics and the emotions and feelings. It's just a biology problem. If the woman is not able, then just get another woman and we can see if that will work. And that sounds incredibly crass, but that's just the way that things worked. And so here's the deal with Sarai. She has this solution that she comes up with, and if I can put it this way, that Sarah's solution, while built on cultural, relational, and experiential precedent, is still a, you can see what I say there, a quote-unquote perhaps solution. She has a solution that she says, look at the end of verse 2, she says, go sleep with my slave, and, and perhaps, perhaps I can build a family through her. Like, in other words, Abram, I don't actually know if this is going to work, but I'm frankly tired of sitting here waiting. This is a perhaps solution. This is a, well, this might work, it might not work. In fact, this might be what God wants to do, it might not be what God wants to do, I don't know. This is a perhaps solution. And if I'm honest, it's actually a good idea, if you'll allow me to say that. It's actually a good idea because it's what was done at the time. And Sarai can't get pregnant, and so there's no fertility clinics. And what other idea is there? This is, if you will, a quote-unquote good idea. But a category exists, and I would argue the category exists of good ideas that aren't God's ideas. And that's, I think, the category that this falls into. This has cultural precedent. 
I mentioned that four different codes allow for this, in fact, demand this and offer this as a solution. It also has relational precedent. There are people that they would have known who would have done this, the experiential precedent. She's seen it done before. This is not brand new. And thus enter the problem for all of us that sometimes that there are things that this world allows for us to do that sometimes seem like good ideas that don't always land in God's idea category. You know, the... The reality is that there um, are things that we do and decisions that we make that sometimes are not um, challenged by my friends, your friends, or our family, your family, but actually don't land in the category of God's idea. So let me, let me say for a minute, what I'm trying to get to with Sarai is saying this, that there are times you come up with good ideas of how to solve problems. And as a self-confessed, impatient control person, what I don't want to communicate is that somehow you shouldn't use the good ideas that God has given you. There are times when you're raising children or when you are growing up and making decisions about school or who to date or whatever that God is going to be silent on the issues that you face. If you're raising toddlers and one comes to you with a runny nose or a bleeding nose and bleeding out the nose, you don't have time to sit there and wait and say, God, can you please give me wisdom and direction on what I should do in this moment? Like You need immediate first aid and response. You just need to do that. There are times when you need to use the good ideas that God has given you to execute and to act on them. And so what I want to say to you is I don't want you to be afraid to use the brain and the mind that God has given you. But here's my point. My point is this, isn't that we should never follow good ideas, but that all good ideas should fall within the moral will of God. That there is this moral will of God, this, this moral ideal of God that is revealed throughout the scriptures that is a kind of a safe landing spot for us to make decisions that could go one way or the other. For example, what college should you go to? What person should you date? How should you use your money exactly? Should you invest in the business, reinvest in it? Should you sell the business? Should you hire more people? How should you handle those employees? There's a lot of discretion given to God's people under the moral will of God. But there are some things that land outside the moral will of God that land inside of the accepted practices of people who we engage with. For example, a few years ago, one of my friends decided he would have an affair with another woman in his life. And so he decided to do that, and the consequential you know, effect of that is that he ended up divorcing his current wife and marrying this other woman ultimately. And, and I will tell you, there is cultural, relational, and experiential precedent for that, right? In fact, he still would call himself a Christian, is trying to figure out what church to go to, to, to find a place that will accept him and his new wife for what they have done. And he wanted to know, he told me, listen Tim, I have never felt so alive than I have with this new woman. I have never felt so alive than I have with her. And I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine why God would not want me to feel this way. And I would put this in the category of, okay, you, if you take God out of it, does this seem like a good idea? Well, sure, to him it does. This is a good idea. I'm not happy in my current marriage. This other woman is attractive, and all of a sudden I'm you know, re-energized. In his mind, it's a quote-unquote good idea. It has cultural precedent, relational precedent, experiential precedent. In other words, people do it. And he's going to challenge him. And so in his mind, it's a good idea, but I will tell you, I believe that it doesn't fall within God's moral will. Like, this isn't how I would recommend, or I think God recommends, raising a family or creating a family. But it's a quote-unquote good idea that falls outside of God's idea. Let me push a little more personally now, too. I remember growing up, I have a sister, and her and I always got along, but on the off occasion where we didn't get along, um, 
here's what happens. I mean, I would get angry. Like, I would get angry that she wouldn't do whatever, that she wouldn't play with me, that she would just go out and kick the ball with me for two minutes and then be done, and I'm ready to play for two hours, and she's got two minutes, and then she wants to read a book, and that kind of ticked me off after a while. And then she would, you know, do random things. It was always her fault, right? Never my fault. It was always her fault. It's just amazing how that worked. And so then I would, what would I do? i get angry. And to me, it feels like a good idea in the moment. To be honest, like it's a good idea to vent my anger. It just feels like that. I don't put it in those words, but I act that way. Like it feels right to get that out. And if God were here, like he wouldn't be offended to me that I get my anger out. It's just what comes out and it feels right to do it right now. And so it's a good idea in my mind to be upset with her, to yell at her or whatever, but it's not in the category of God's ideal or God's idea. By the way, the same principle applies to me right now in parenting. Anger can feel helpful in the moment. It can vent some frustration that is there, but it doesn't fall within God's moral will. You know, James tells us that the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so what people may not challenge me on, like, oh yeah, you have a right to be upset. Oh, if your kids did that or if my sister did that, I can see why you're upset. It has cultural precedent. People do it all the time. Parents get upset and rarely are we challenged. But yet the things that are good ideas, there is a category of good ideas that are not within God's ideal or God's moral will. Same thing for gossip. Same thing, by the way, for people who maybe you know and I know who hold grudges forever. You know, people like that. And if, if, they only, if, if you only knew what they knew, if you understood how deep the hurt was in their marriage or in their family or because of what their parents did to them when they grew up, if you only knew and if I only knew, then maybe we would understand. But I need to hold this grudge. I need to keep punishing them. And to be honest, few people will challenge that. I mean, your parents left you when you were this young or your dad walked out or your mom did this or your spouse did that. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. And I know people who do that. And so we hold grudges. Again, it seems like a good idea, but not within God's moral will. And so this category exists for this, and, and Sarah does the same thing, and she says to Abram, Abram, here's what I want you to do. I have an idea. I think it's a good idea. Let's try the Hagar thing, and let's see what happens. But it's a perhaps solution. It's a, yeah, perhaps this will work. And let's see what happens next with Sarah. Verse 3 goes on. Abram, the rest of verse 2, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and, voila, she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She began to despise Sarai, which should come as a surprise to no one. Because all of a sudden, both Hagar and Sarai are both wives of one man. And now Hagar, who used to be down here, is now equal with Sarai, except she's actually more than equal. Because, aha, uh-huh, I'm the one who can bring children. Ha uh-huh, ha, you can't. Ha uh-huh, ha, I can. And all of a sudden, Hagar goes from down here to up here and begins to look down on Sarai. Because she's able to do things that Sarai can't. Very valuable things in this culture, especially. So then, verse 5, then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now let me stop here for a minute and just kind of say, like sometimes I think men just can't win in a situation like this. (laughs) And now I'm moving on quickly. (laughs) 
Sarai blames Abram. Like, I don't know. If I'm there, I'm like, Sarai, come on. Like, you brought this up. You said, why don't you take my servant here? And then she comes back in verse 5, and you're responsible? All right, I'm going to move on. Verse 6. So Abram, um, let's go over his leadership in verse 6. He steps back. Um, yeah, honestly, I think this is a poor leadership example, and, and I think you can judge for yourself, but here's what he says. Your slave is in your hands. <laughs> Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. This was Abram's opportunity to lead and protect even someone like Hagar, and he just backs off, hands off. Hey, do whatever you think is best. So Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled. And imagine for a minute how bad the mistreatment must have been for a pregnant woman named Hagar to flee the home of Abram, the only place she would actually get protection and go run into the wilderness, which is what she does. Imagine how bad that mistreatment must have been. I don't think this is just snide remarks and cut eyes at, at Hagar. This has got to be deeper than that, where she felt like it's better, I'll be better off running from the protection of Abram and just getting out of here and possibly dying in the wilderness, which is where she ends up in verse 7. Verse 7 reads, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was a spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, why, where have you come from and where are you going? And uh, she said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel said, I added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Pause in here for a minute. I just want to say, God steps in where Abram fails. When Abram says, go do whatever you will, Sarai does, and then God steps in. And this is the other part of what I really want to communicate this morning that's important to see, is that some of us in this room might be able to resonate more with Hagar than Sarai this morning. Some of us in this room are listening online later. Maybe your life has been impacted by someone else's quote-unquote good ideas. Maybe one of your parents had the good idea that a divorce was the right option, and you as a child have grown up with the pain of that. Maybe you grew up with parent who abused you or left you or abandoned you. Maybe you've grown up with an abusive past or situation or you've been, you were, things did not go right at work. It wasn't actually your fault at all, but you got the short end of the stick. And you may be able to resonate more with Hagar and feel the weight of the bad outcomes of someone else's quote-unquote good idea. But hey, this seems like a brilliant idea. Why don't we end this thing? Why don't I move on? And why don't I cut my employees? And why don't I do whatever? And then real people may be like you are impacted by the bad outcomes of someone else's quote-unquote good idea. And that may be you. you know, and I get that. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see God connecting and meeting Hagar right here in the place of her wilderness, in the place where she thinks she's going to die, where there's no life and really no hope for her right here. God comes and meets her right here. And look what he says. The angel of the Lord is speaking on behalf of God, but comes in verse 11 and continues. And here's what the angel of the Lord said to her. You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he'll live in hostility toward all his brothers. Interesting um, you know, preview of his life. Verse 13. And then she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. This is so powerful idea, especially if you can resonate with Hagar's pain. Um, she says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. What a powerful concept. If you are in the Hagar situation, if you feel that pain of Hagar for a minute, I want you to know there is a God who sees you. 
And Hagar named that right in that space. There's a God who sees your pain. There is a God of redemption, who even in the world of bad outcomes from other people's good ideas, there is that God who comes into the middle of your bad outcomes, the things that are coming to hit you, who sees you right in the middle of your wilderness and right in the middle of your pain. That is a powerful idea to be seen, to be known by God, to know that God isn't on vacation, he isn't sleeping, he is a God who sees in the middle of some of your deepest pain. That is how Hagar encounters God. So he goes, she goes on, verse 14, and this is why that well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. And Abram was 86, year old, 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And so the rest of the story ultimately is that in verse, chapter 21 of Genesis that Sarah does finally get pregnant and has Isaac. Uh, which is good news for her. Um, it still doesn't deal with the struggle of Ishmael and, and Isaac and how the two will work. But verse um, 18 of chapter 25 does give a final legacy of Ishmael. And here's what it says. I'll just read it for you now. His descendants, Ishmael's descendants, settled in the area um, near the eastern border of Egypt as you go toward Asher. And here's what it says. that They lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. Believe it or not, Sarai's decision to make a good idea, even though it may not have been God's ideal, to, to step into this idea had cascading effects down the generations. People who she never will meet, who are continuing to deal with the bad outcomes of her decision to move in this direction. It's profound to me how one decision like this that isn't within God's ideal can continue to bring brokenness um, generation upon generation upon generation. So two ideas big picture this morning as we begin to wrap it up. I want us to learn something about us and then something about God. And first of all, about us. I started this way, and I want to come back to this, that not every good idea is God's idea. And I will say, especially ideas that appeal to impatience and control. When you're given over in your life, you need to make a decision about your family and your future and your fears and struggles and money and everything that you have to decide on. Decisions that ultimately take trust away from God and put control and impatience more into your lap and my lap, if they are in the perhaps category, sitting there like, I don't know if this is going to work, but perhaps. I don't know if this is within God's moral will, but perhaps. When we begin to be perhapsing, um, there can be a real question as to whether this is really God's idea or just your good idea. And our filters often are, well, if no one in my family is going to challenge me, if no one is going to think less of me, and if no one is going to have a problem with me, I will go ahead and do this. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to move quickly. No one is going to question it. Sure. No one questions Sarah either or Abraham in the moment. But not every good idea is God's idea. And so I just want to encourage you to rest your decisions in the moral will of God and be sure that the things that you do, the people you date, the, the relationships you're in, the way you handle grievances and pain and insecurities in your life are within the category of God's moral will, not just kind of perhapsing our way through. Because our good ideas, if they're outside of the realm of God's moral will, often come with bad outcomes that we often can't see but do impact the generations to come. And maybe even more importantly, that's my first big idea, maybe even more importantly, something about God, that God provides redemption even when our good ideas lead to bad outcomes. This is what we see with Hagar and Sarah, that this is who God is. He is a God who comes to our point of brokenness, our point of pain and struggle, and sees us. Sees the addictions that we can't get over, sees the habits that we can't break, sees the shame that we're trying to hide, sees the sin that we're trying to manage, sees the things we're trying to control and keep under. He comes there and he sees it. And then he doesn't condemn us for it. 
but he offers grace. So this is profound and ridiculous at the same time, that God is a God of redemption. You know, Paul writes in the New Testament, he says, don't, don't you know, don't you know, don't you remember? Like, don't forget, please. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God. It's this mercy of God that leads us to repentance that we can turn back to him and say, God, you've come to me. I've tried to, in this series, help us see the connection between Abraham's relationship with God and our relationship with him. That the Abrahamic covenant that God cut with Abraham is the foundation for the new covenant that God has cut with us through Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples in a place that's called the upper room, and he says, this cup, and he's about to hand out a cup to, to people around the room, he said, this cup is the covenant, uh, is my new covenant in, in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to die for you. Like, I'm going to die for you, and I want you to drink, in that case, I want you to drink this wine as a symbol that I'm, I'm giving to you my very life. And he established a new covenant, a new way of relating to people that was built on the promises, the unconditional promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That the way God dealt with Abraham is the same way that God deals with us, except in a way that is so profoundly gracious through the cross. That the way that we see Jesus is in the shadow of the Abrahamic covenant, that God deals so graciously with Hagar and God deals so graciously with us. That he calls you and he calls me when I make, quote-unquote, good ideas that lead to bad outcomes. He doesn't leave me there. He invites me to the cross to look at it and say, in the middle of that, I'm bringing redemption for you that I want you to know. I want you to know. I want your kids to know and the next generation to know. If you have been like Hagar or maybe like Sarai, and both of us are in both categories sometimes, by the way, that God comes with redemption. And so in that room, in that upper room space, when Jesus says to his disciples, uh, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood for you. He's laying the foundation again. Say, come with all the stuff you have. Come with all the brokenness you have, with all the people that you interact with in your days who are broken and struggling. See again that Jesus is the one who is God's offer of redemption, that there is no good choice or bad choice that is outside the scope of the redemption of God. And so people, Christians for generation upon generation upon generations, have been replicating that scene in the upper room. They've been sharing the cup together across Countries, when we were in the Dominican, we shared communion with people in the Dominican, drinking bad wine and eating uh, you know, bread that came by and half choking on it as we were doing it. But the point was we are sharing in this truth with Christians across the cultures that Jesus saves, he redeems, and he's come for you and he's come for me. For all of the bad outcomes, and for all the bad choices that we think sometimes are good. And so I want you to remember, not every good idea is God's idea. Rest your great ideas in the moral will of God, and then move forward with confidence. But also know that God redeems everything that's broken. And part of the reminder of that is what he did with his disciples when he cut that covenant in the upper room and said, here we go, I'm going to die for you. If you ever doubt how far my love goes, whenever you drink the cup and whenever you eat the bread... Do it in remembrance of me, that you can remember, this is my covenant for you. I have died for all of the foolishness that you will encounter in your life. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, you're going to find rest in that relationship. And so this morning, we get to participate in that same practice of sharing in the communion together, sharing the bread and the cup, kind of going back to that upper room, going back to the reminder of this covenant that God has made with his people through Jesus. It's an incredible moment to just stop and think again 
are the decisions that I'm making, do they make sense in light of the cross? Do the grievances I hold make sense in light of the cross? Does the way I'm treating my spouse and my kids make sense in light of the cross? Does my desire for control and impatience make sense in light of the cross? It's a great time for all of us to come back and kind of reset. Those who have called themselves Christian, we invite you. You don't need to be a member of this church. If you call yourself Christian, we invite you to, to take part in this communion with us. We're, in a moment, we're going to distribute the, the bread, followed immediately by the cup. We're going to hold both of those until everybody is served, and we're going to eat um, and drink together as a, as a body here in this place. But we do that so that we can stop and come back to who Jesus is and what he's done for us and reset the way that we think, reset our story in light of of his story of redemption. So we would love for you to participate with us. And so let me pray for us as we kind of get ready to do that and we'll continue and serve and drink and eat communion in a moment. Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning and engaging Abram's and Sarah's story again, seeing some things that were done that, that we can resonate with that makes sense because it's hard to trust for that long, over a decade, without results coming. And it's easy to see our good ideas as great ones and not always consider whether they're really within your moral will or not, especially when they're not challenged by people closest to us. So I pray that you would help us as men and women, young men and young women, to, to come back in the way that we make decisions on the situations that we have in front of us, relationally, business, etc., and, um, and continue to lean into knowing that what we do needs to be in line with what your moral will is revealed in Scripture, and help us remember again your God of redemption, who comes to us in the middle of all the bad outcomes that we experience as a result of the pain and sin and brokenness in this world. So I pray now as we prepare to take communion together that this reminder of Jesus on the cross that he has come to cut this new covenant with us that all of our striving, all of our effort to make ourselves right, to place ourselves correctly in relation to you, God, will kind of be set aside as we come under together the grace of Jesus in dying for us, knowing that it's not by our merit, our strength, our wisdom, or any character or quality that we have that we come before Jesus. But the ground, as they say, is even at the cross. There's no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, in light of what Jesus has done for us. And so I pray now as we prepare to take this, would you remind us in a few moments as we eat and then drink together that you're a God who saves, you're a God who redeems, and you are a God who sees us. We pray this in Jesus' name.